Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Many of you, I know, many of you will know how C.S. Lewis describes the death of Aslan, the great lion in his Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember these words? Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Four hags grinning and leering, yet also at first, hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though if the lion had chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. It's verses like ours this morning, this passage that we have open in front of us, Verses like that that gave birth to that kind of writing in C.S. Lewis's imagination. You notice that phrase, with one paw he could have destroyed them all and yet he did not. <laughs> what, what C.S. Lewis manages to capture is, is the awesome majesty, the strange and compelling majesty of somebody who is in complete command and utter control going willingly to their death that that captures exactly doesn't it that the narrative here we've got in front of us today do you remember chapter 14 verse 35 what what jesus said to his father if you like it is jesus taking his his own will and placing it inside his father's will Tying his will to his father's will. Surrendering to that first of all. That is what means here in what we have today. He is the one in complete control. He's in total control of every other surrender that he is forced to endure. This morning and evening I want to give you two points. We're going to read into chapter 15 this evening. One point this morning and a second one. This evening, one sermon over two sermons. Here's what we're going to see this morning. Arrested, condemned and sentenced. Jesus is an innocent king. Arrested, condemned and sentenced. Jesus is an innocent king. And then this evening, mocked, beaten, humiliated. Jesus is a majestic king. Point one, really, this morning is kind of big picture. Point two is a closer look at some of some of the details in front of us. Did you notice how in both of those points, what we're looking at here, the wording says that there is more going on here in front of us than meets the eye. Mark is using irony here. 
When somebody is arrested, condemned and sentenced by the highest courts in the land, the word innocent is not the word that we usually attach to them. When somebody is mocked, beaten, humiliated, majestic is not how we picture them in our mind's eye, is it? Ah, says Mark to us, there is light here in the darkness. In the weakness and shame there is power and glory, more wonderful than anything else you will ever see. Arrested, condemned and sentenced, Jesus is an innocent king. I want us just to take in the big picture of what we've read together this morning. There are actually three trials taking place in this story. Three trials, not one. Jesus is tried twice before the council, verse 52. Then if you look at chapter 15, verse 1, before Pilate. Jesus is tried twice and Peter is tried once. We've seen this in Mark, haven't we, all the way through. This works in sandwich structure. Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin, verses 53 to 65. He's tried by Pilate, chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. But in the middle, Peter is on trial. And here is what is happening. The reverse is being played out in the middle trial. The opposite of what is happening on the two ends of the sandwich... End of chapter 14, start of chapter 15. What is happening in those trials of the Lord Jesus? The opposite is played out in Peter's trial in the middle. Friends, just take this in. Jesus is arrested, he is condemned, and he is sentenced. But look how unjust both of his trials are. Look how unjust they are. Look at verse 55 of chapter 14. They know the outcome that they want, don't they? And now they have to try and find the evidence, manufacture the evidence to achieve that end result. Look how calmly and clearly Mark puts it. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus, seeking testimony to, to weigh up the evidence, to sift, no, to put him to death. There is no evidence that demands a death sentence. Verse 56, they they testified falsely. Verse 57, they testified falsely. Verse 58, they could not agree. What should happen in a court of law where all those things are true? Case thrown out. Defendant dismissed. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent and his prosecutors are guilty. You notice what the high priest says and does? He asks Jesus... If he is the son of the blessed one, and this time, as Jesus answers truthfully and says, yes I am, the high priest calls it blasphemy and tears his clothes. But of course, Mark is saying to us, which one of them is really guilty of blasphemy? The ironies here are profound. Let me just point out some more to you as we we look at this. Here is the Sanhedrin claiming to stand on the side of the law with Jesus sitting in the dock. But in fact, the Sanhedrin is breaking the law and Jesus is the one upholding the law. See, the law said that conviction for a capital charge, if you're going to put someone to death, there must be two witnesses in agreement. That's what the law said. At least two witnesses must agree in their evidence. 
They don't have this, but they're heading towards execution any, anyway. Do you know what is so evil, friends, about Jesus' trial? Verse 55 again. Seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They had decided in advance what the outcome should be. Innocent until proven guilty. Isn't that what we hope for in the highest courts of our lands? No. Guilty before anything has been proven. So the very people in the land who are meant to love life are seeking the death of an innocent man. And here's the thing, they knew the law said that a person could not be condemned to death on the testimony of just one witness. There had to be several witnesses. That's why you have verse 56. There were many that bore false witness. See, here is the evil irony. These religious leaders are so hypocritical, they are actually trying to keep the law scrupulously, even as they break it. The law says there must be more than one witness. So what are they saying? Let's get more than one witness. That's what the law says. Stick to the law, fellas. Um, Excuse me, chief priest. Isn't the whole point of it that there must be more than one truthful witness? Oh, no, never mind that detail. They say, let's stick to the letter of the law. There must be more than one. It doesn't actually matter whether they are truthful witnesses or not. Oh, the evil of scrupulously sticking to one part of the law while shamelessly breaking it in another. Another irony, verse 62, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin will stand trial before the Son of Man when he comes in glory. What did you make of verse 65? Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, mocking him for being a prophet as what is about to happen, verse 66. His prophecy about Peter is about to come true. Every single one of his prophecies is coming true. Friends, innocent and guilt here are on clear display, but you find them both in the opposite place than we're meant to see them. The one in the dark is innocent. The ones prosecuting are guilty. It's exactly the same with Pilate. We'll look at it this evening. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, I am. And as the trial progresses, there is absolutely no evidence against Jesus, nothing that merits the charge of death, and yet Pilate's guilt grows and grows as Jesus' innocence shines and shines. Although he is sentenced to die, Jesus is in fact an innocent king. An innocent man is tried by guilty men and found guilty of no crime but still deserving death. Guilty men act as if they are innocent and the innocent is tried as if he is guilty. And Mark drives this home to us by putting in the middle, it cannot be a mistake, can it? Cannot be a mistake, verse 65. Jesus is mocked for being a prophet and straight away the action switches to verse 66. A courtyard with a servant girl, some bystanders and a disciple having second thoughts. Peter's trial is a direct parallel to Jesus' trial, isn't it? Each one of them, Jesus and Peter, receive three accusations. The first two accusations, Jesus is silent, and only in the third does he answer, he says, I am. 
The first two accusations to Peter, he denies them. Then in the third, he calls down curses on himself and swears. Swears by the living God in heaven. I am telling you the truth. I do not know this man. You see what's happening? If if it was a camera, if there was a a film being, being played out here, you would see above Peter's head in the distance, in the courtyard up above him, Jesus is being mocked and beaten for being a prophet. What is happening? Down below, round the fire, his prophecy about Peter is coming true. Peter has followed Jesus at a distance, followed, followed at a distance. I will never leave you, Lord. I will never leave you. I will die for you. And then the distance begins to set in and set in. And now there is a relational gap between him and his master. Even if I have to die with you, Peter said. But look at verse 54. Peter sat with the guards. Sits with the very people responsible for Jesus' death. The contrast between Jesus and Peter could, could not be clearer, could it? Before false witnesses, Jesus makes a true confession. Before true witnesses, Peter makes a false confession. See the inversion? Before false witnesses, Jesus speaks truly. Before true witnesses, Peter speaks falsely. Friends, here is what is happening. Here is a beautiful truth being woven for us here in in, in the narrative as it is told, as it unfolds. Before anybody can ever die with Jesus. That's what Peter said. I will die with you. Before anybody can ever die with Jesus, we need Jesus to die for us. See, the disciples have always said with, haven't they? And Jesus has always said for. We can be baptised with the baptism you're you're going to undergo. We'll come with you, Lord. We will die with you. Jesus says to them, yes, one day you will. One day you will undergo the same baptism that I will. One day you will die like I am going to die. But you do not yet understand the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, the very beginning of discipleship, the essence of following the Lord Jesus is realizing that unless we let him do something for us, we cannot ever do anything with him. It's why for Peter the awful bitterness of verse 72. So, so sad, isn't it? He broke down and wept. The awful bitterness of that verse. It's why it is followed in John's Gospel by the beautiful restoration on the shore of Galilee where three times Jesus will ask Peter if he loves him. Three times. Each one of those statements cancelling out a denial. Because the Lord Jesus dies for his people, his love for us is greater than our service of him. Because he dies for us, he does not need us to do things for him before he can begin to love us. It's not how it works. It's not that we serve and then Jesus loves in return. No, he loves by laying down his life and then we give ourselves to him. For people who abandon him at the last and people who know what verse 72 is like, that shattering kind of grief and shame because he dies for people like that the innocent king for the guilty I want to say to you this morning there is nothing 
absolutely nothing on earth that cannot be forgiven. Nothing at all. Brothers and sisters, do you see what Mark is doing for us this morning with this passage? He is, he is drawing a line down through the middle of the world. He's drawing a line through the whole of world history. And he's saying to us, on one side of the line stands every man and woman who has ever lived. All of us on one side, from Adam and Eve, right through to you and me, right through to well, little Sophie Ellis, our newest church member here among us, all of us. On one side, and on the other side of the line, stands only one man, the Lord Jesus. On our side of the line, we are all different, aren't we? But all the same. We are different in the way that we act on this side of the line, but all the same, this side of the line is where we live. Some of us on this side deny the Lord Jesus like Peter, don't we? We deny being with him. We deny being seen with him. We're cowards. We choose reputation and prestige and comfort. We can say we are for Jesus, but we will choose really to live for ourselves. Some of us know exactly what verse 72 is like. That kind of broken-hearted, profound self-awareness of Not having lived up to who we said we would be and who we thought we were. Some of us though on this side of the line aren't like Peter. We're more like the council, aren't we? We are religious hypocrites. Oh, we we would rather die than have anyone ever think we have not kept the law. Showing people that we keep the law is so important to us, but... We are not in love with the spirit of the law, with the truth of the law, with with a heart aflame for God's honour and truth and justice. Or the evil of scrupulously keeping one part of it while willfully trampling another part. We are law breakers, not law keepers. But we would hate anyone to ever see or know that about us. The point of it all, Mark is saying, is whether you do it like Peter or whether you do it like the Sanhedrin in the council, in the death of the Lord Jesus, the whole human race is on trial. And only one man stands innocent. One man stands guiltless. Only one man stands deserving of life. And it is not me. It is not you. It is the Lord Jesus the man on the other side of the line. On the day you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And ever since every child of Adam has had Adam's guilt imputed to them, given to them, like Adam and Eve, we reach out, don't we, to take and to touch and to eat and to have what is not ours, to take and to touch and to eat. We choose lies over truth. We choose evil over good. We are not innocent J.C. Ryle said our first father Adam was guilty and yet he tried to excuse himself the second Adam was guiltless and yet he made no defence at all arrested condemned and sentenced Jesus is an innocent king On this side of the line, on the right side of the line, on his side of the line, one man and one man only offered his life, his whole life to the Father as a living sacrifice. 
a pure and spotless human being. Everything we are not, and yet which he is innocent, pure, righteous, holy. And so, friends, this morning, I said this would be short. I simply want us, in these moments, Palm Sunday worship, simply want us to see him. To see his radiant innocence. And simply want us to adore him for it. You need to come again this evening to see what Jesus does with his innocence. To see how his innocence saves us. But here this morning I want us simply to worship. Simply to adore him for it. He is everything I am not. He is innocent. So let's worship God together. We're going to sing. He stood before the court on trial instead of us. He met its power to hurt, condemned to face the cross. These are the crimes that tell the tale of human guilt. Our sins, our death, our hell. On these the case is built.